Premier Christian Newscast. Ever since October the 7th, the world has watched on with horror at a tiny patch of land jammed up next to the eastern Mediterranean. First, Hamas fighters stormed into Israel from Gaza, murdering over a thousand Israeli men, women and children, and dragging hundreds back more with them as hostages. Then, Israel began a devastating bombing campaign on the densely packed Gaza Strip, which to date has led to the deaths of thousands. Now, Israeli soldiers and tanks are fighting deep within Gaza as terrified civilians hide from bombs, shells and bullets. Water, electricity and food are fast running out. Aid is struggling to make it in. As Christians, we've watched this horror scene unfold in the Holy Land for over two months now. Many of us feel helpless, confused, bewildered. How can we process what is taking place in the lands where Jesus walked in the build-up to the celebration of his birth 2,000 years ago? Do we have to pick a side? Has God? What on earth can we pray for? I'm Tim Wyatt, and in this week's Premier Christian Newscast, I want to understand from a Christian perspective what has been happening in Gaza and Israel since October the 7th, and how we as believers can engage and respond to it. We'll be joined by a panel of Christians who are living or working in Israel and Palestine to try and get a grip on this crisis in the Holy Land, and to think through where on earth we can find God in the midst of it all. Well, thank you, everyone, um, for joining us. Really glad to have all of you on the show. Um, could I start by asking each of you just to quickly introduce yourselves? Um, Richard, why don't you go first? Yes, I'm Richard Sewell. I'm the Dean of St. George's College in Jerusalem. Uh, the college actually is a pilgrimage centre and we receive pilgrims from all over the world. Currently, we're closed because nobody is travelling to Jerusalem Um, I'm also a canon of the St. George's Anglican Cathedral here in Jerusalem, and I've um, lived here for just over five years. And Sally, uh, do you want to introduce yourself? Yes, so my name is Sally Azar, and I am uh, a pastor in the Evangelical Lutheran Church in Jordan and the Holy Land. I was born and raised in Jerusalem and only been ordained in January 23, so I haven't been a pastor for a long time, but it's also a weird not weird time but it's also a different kind of pastoring throughout this time so um yeah i'm happy to be here and glad to be talking to you all thank you and last but not least jamie thank you tim uh, so i'm jamie i'm the director of programs for embrace the middle east i'm a bit of a career humanitarian spent a long time working in disasters and responding myself in the last 10 years i've had the privilege to work with embrace We partner with around 50 local Christian organisations all across the Middle East, including Israel, the West Bank and Gaza, supporting them in their Christian social witness. A real privilege to be with you all this morning. Brilliant. Well, um, I wanted to start by asking each of you, work around the whole room, if if it were, just to ask, um, what has been your kind of overriding response, overriding emotion since October the 7th and all the events that we've watched unfold since then? Because there's been a huge range of reactions around the world particularly by christians but i'm i'm keen to know 
from yourselves how how you've been feeling watching on. Can I start with you, Sally? What 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 have you been feeling since October the seventh, watching what's been happening? Well, let's say it's been a, a, a full of a roller coaster with everything going on, but at the same time, it seems like we're the roller coaster is only going down, <laughs> and there's like nothing. Um, like it's not like I don't know. It's been just getting worse and worse, and I don't know what to feel anymore. Just because of all the different things that are happening, it's just I don't see any hope. Not not hope. Like I still have hope, but I don't see anything that can that I can say. Okay, this is exactly what uh, what we need right now, or what's happening right now, so that we can continue. Or things are gonna change because every day we wake up and we're, we're like, it's either getting worse or it's still the same and the same thing. So that's why it's just a mess with that. Richard, what about you? What's your overriding emotion been these last months? Yeah, all the same as as Sally. Um, that just so intense all the time. Um, feeling a deep sense of grief and sadness. Um, you know, some anger um, and fear for the future. Um, you know, we just don't go for more than an hour ever without talking about this war and the terrible things that we're hearing, which are either sort of personal testimonies of friends we've got um, in Gaza or friends or friends in Gaza, uh, our, our, our hospital there, news that comes out of that. And so we, we just are, are so laden with the terrors of all of this and feeling the pain of everybody else, you know, because I don't think there is anybody in this land who is not frightened and angry and sad. Um, and so you just carry, particularly for me, you know, I've lived here. I feel it's my home. I'm really part of this community, but it's not my community that, you know, they are not my people as such because I can leave at any time. But I feel for the the people of the land and and that it makes my heart so heavy Jamie I would echo all that's been said by Sally and Richard I think I've been shocked and surprised at my own response to this as I said before I'm a kind of career humanitarian so I've lived through these situations in multiple countries and this one has hit me harder than ever before and you kind of feel guilty for feeling that way because it's the people in Gaza that are at the brunt of it People who are friends in many cases, like Richard, I'm a, a step removed, but I know people in those churches, um, people who've lost family, and there is just a numbness. And I would echo Sally's comment about the roller coaster. That's exactly the word I would use. It's one and up and down. So my emotions are up and down, but the general trajectory is heading downwards. And as Richard says, this is on the tip of our tongues. It's a, it's a conversation at home. It's a conversation at work all the time. How do we respond? How do we share the right things? There's fear about saying the wrong things, so you get in the press for the wrong reasons. Um, we want to bring people with us and tell the story that Gazans are, are living, um, but doing it in a way which is going to be helpful and not unhelpful. It's a really difficult, numbing roller coaster. Did any of you expect us to still be sitting here, what are we now, two and a half months on after the Hamas attack? Did anyone expect this kind of round of violence and conflict to be lasting so long with no end in sight? I think the on the first day, I would have said no. I sat on the train going to a university with my daughter, so in a just completely normal life, 
and seeing it unfold. And he thought, oh, this is another Gaza conflict. It'll be another 10 days, two weeks. Um, but very quickly by the Monday, it was very clear that this was completely different and it was going to be a long-term um, war. And that's what we're seeing. Can I can I say that I, it's not about the war that I'm thinking that um, that it will be like that, but it's about the people's reactions that have been like it surprises me <laughs> that a lot of people are actually not um, are not like um, well responding <laughs> in, a, in a in a way that um, like how can we even um, let this happen? So it's not about um, like the way that. Um, Everything is happening in Gaza right now. That's not that surprising because we know how that is kind of. It's been going on and off for the past many years. But how people are, um, I don't know, It's it's been for us as if people are not seeing us in that sense. And the people that like making this differentiations uh, between uh, people and, um, and war in that sense. So that's what surprises me more, something that I didn't expect from the world. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. Um, I, I think in the UK, slightly different than in some other parts of the world, um, in that I think people are seeing at the top or very near the top of their news every day um, the, the brutal suffering of Gazan people. And I think the ordinary people have got it from quite early on that this is just a shockingly awful situation that should not exist. But the politicians and sometimes sadly even religious leaders have sort of given the sense of going, well, you know, it's not our place to criticize, um, you know, Israel has this right and that right. And we we really just, you know, have to stand back and their right to self-defense. Um, and so we'll, we'll just let it ride. Uh, for now, you know, they, yes, of course, they need to be a bit careful, but um, that, that's that been my shock that it has taken even this long, whatever, what is it, 12 weeks in now before people are going, this is impossible, this, this is intolerable. Um, it's not to say anybody would, would want to allow Hamas to continue their horrors because that can't be right or for just to go and pretend nothing ever happened. Um but to see such awful suffering and with such little humanitarian aid, um, so the b- bombing and the killing is bad enough, as it was on October the 7th. I mean, that was, that, that was terrifying, awful, what Hamas did to the communities along the edge of, of Gaza. But the bombing and the killing is going on every single day, and it could have stopped and it has not stopped. Um, in terms of predicting what, how long these things will go on, I, I learned some time ago not to make predictions in this land because I've heard so many people make predictions with deep conviction that turned out to be totally wrong. Even people that I would you know, look to uh, and expect to have a, a reliable answer. The, the, this land, uh, the, the intensity of it, it, it is so unpredictable and we just have to we, we have to dig in for the long haul emotionally, physically, theologically. And what I keep saying is, look, you know, don't don't just feel all um, wrung out uh, so early on. You've got to stick with us. And please, however awful it may be, 
Don't look away just because you don't think you can bear it anymore. You don't have to watch 24-hour news. None of us can cope with that. But because you switch off the news, please don't look away from the suffering of what's going on here. It's it's too awful and it's too important. It It isn't a little local um, uh, conflict. This can get a lot bigger and it and it and it will do if the world does not pay proper attention. Hmm. I, I wonder, I mean, we, we kind of come to it here, but there's a huge amount of focus here in the West on, on the amount of death and destruction in Gaza from, from Israeli bombs and missiles and things. Um, do you think there is any way that a Christian could justify or explain what Israel is doing on grounds of self-defense? Or, or should we just be unequivocal in saying that irrespective of of the, how the war started, how it is being carried out is morally is morally wrong. I, I'm going to come straight out and say I think it is morally repugnant. I, I I am not a total pacifist. I do understand nations need to defend themselves, and when you suffer a terrible attack, you are go, you you have to do something to deal with the threat that is an ongoing threat, but not this, not like this. Not as long as this, uh, with total disregard for civilian lives, babies, children, women, and men. No, I, I, I just cannot stomach it. And I don't think any Christian or any person of responsible goodwill should be able to. Sally, what's your view? like I'm um, as a Christian or something like I in my mind it's like when. When someone hits you on one cheek, Jesus said to turn the other cheek in that sense. Um, but um, but also like thinking of the whole situation as a self-defense kind of thing is just for me very troubling because we need to understand that where we're living is not a, like we're here with being occupied in that sense. So it's like, um, <laughs> like that's the question. Like who, like does someone have to self-defend being the occupier kind of like to the to some to some people who are actually um like i don't know uh, it's not about the whole situation it's i would still of course say it was, everything was terrible that happened on that day but the way of responding was not the like what well, of course was not first a christian kind of way that we would respond to and um and still i would just not um there is no justification for any kind of violence in that sense um, from, from both sides. In Christianity, that's just a no-go from both, uh, from anyone, not, not, not because of anything. Jamie, the Christians that you're in touch with, how, how, are they, how have they been responding on the ground? Is that, is, are you hearing similar things that are kind of, no, we don't agree with what Hamas did, but none of this can possibly justify the retaliation? Yes, in a very simple, very simple terms, people are in absolute shock. How you, how you can justify this? I just don't understand. And I think, as Christians, as Sally Riley said, we are called to a different way. So we believe in a different way. Um, I'm probably more of a pacifist than Richard. Maybe I'm naive. Um, but the, the need to live differently as Christians is so important. But yeah, the, the friends that I have in Gaza are just absolutely shocked. Or actually, all my Palestinian friends, similar to Sally, are absolutely shocked at the scale of this and the seeming indifference of the world. And I'm troubled by the idea of self-defense. 
because self-defense would suggest that you're you're moving towards a situation where things are going to be better and i'm really concerned that, that this is not what's going to be the case here you have a, a population in gaza where over 50 percent are under 18. you've got children who are brutalized and will grow up into this um, what does this brutal response do to them what does the future look like people have got nowhere to go back to so that the whole way of living has been destroyed um, the reconstruction is going to take a significant amount of time. I just don't see that the, the preconditions for peace and a safe future for either side, let alone for Israel, is, is being created by this situation. So it just doesn't make any sense to me from a rational point of view. And I find as a moral person, whether you're Christian or any other, I just don't see how this can be justified in any way, shape or form. Richard, you're well connected with the Christian community in Israel, in Jerusalem. Have they been kind of calling out the Israeli authorities, kind of trying to draw attention to to the, as you say, the kind of moral unacceptability of what they're doing? Well, it's it's actually very difficult because the, the there is such a um, focus on what everybody is saying. And if you speak against the war, anybody is going to get a huge weight of both public opinion against you and of the state threatening you. Uh, This is true of Jewish people as well as of Palestinians, wherever they may be. The level of surveillance is absolutely terrifying. People who are posting things, even just liking something on Facebook or or Instagram, uh, can can bring the police to your door. Um, So there have been some very brave voices standing up um, in the West Bank. Um, Sally's colleague, our friend, uh, Pastor Munda Isaac has been very outspoken in the world's media, calling out the situation exactly as he sees it, and he is paying a price for that. In Israel itself, I think it, it's actually very hard for Christians to speak even as freely as we have done here, and we're being extremely you know, moderate and considered compared to how some people talk privately, uh, um, how they feel about it. It It's really a very difficult situation um, because there, there, there is a high level of suppression and oppression about what you are free to say here. And, uh, you know, I have to be careful. Sally has to be careful because she has rights and freedoms that can very easily be taken away. I can be kicked out of the country or not allowed back in after I come back. But Sally and her family have a huge amount to lose if they if they get on the wrong side of the uh, of the Israeli government. Do you feel that pressure, Sally, that 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 sense that you're not able to speak your mind or, or call out as a Christian, as a leader, what you're seeing on the ground? Well, yeah, definitely. I feel like it's been also changing, I would say, from the beginning of the war till now, because in many ways we're, um, I mean, you can see how many people around you are being arrested, how many are um, just like um, losing their jobs and stuff. And like, so it's just so easily um, changed uh, in terms of the how the radicality in the government is changing with the laws and everything. And that's affecting, of course, all of us. Even now when I'm talking, I'm re- re- being very cautious with everything that I'm saying, uh, just because you never know, like, um, are th- like who's listening, you know? So it's just a bit um, annoying sometimes that you're not completely free to say whatever you think. 
um, and yeah, I mean, as you said, Richard, like even Munder, like Munder is in the West Bank, he also has, of course, a lot of consequences to face, but at least in the West Bank, it's different than being in Jerusalem, because in Jerusalem, it's kind of a special kind of situation living here with um, Palestinians, Israelis, Jews, Muslims, and Christians, and we all here in Jerusalem live differently than uh, the ones in the West Bank, but we're all, of course, affected by the whole thing in different ways. And one of the things that perhaps hasn't had as much coverage as it should is that while the focus is on Gaza, there has been a massive upsurge in violence between Israeli settlers and Palestinians in the West Bank since the war began. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, not only the West Bank, but also in Jerusalem. In East Jerusalem, there's a lot um, happening already with a lot of settlements and so on um, in town. So I think that's also, um, yeah, I think um, a lot of that is happening all over town, not only in the West Bank, but also East Jerusalem. And what is life like? Because there are still a few number of Christians living in Gaza itself, I understand. Not not as many as there used to be, but there are still a few. What has life been like for them? You you must have friends, colleagues, family. Have you been in, touch, been in touch with them, seeing how they're surviving, how they're coping? Well, um, we we are certainly reaching out to people we know, but not directly, like through friends and friends, through pastors or through, through the churches, of course. And so uh, whatever we get, it's like we're all... They're all hiding in the churches. There's no place to go. And they're like, where do we go to? But at the same time, some are like, we don't want to leave our homes. Uh, this is our home. And um, so it's not about leaving. And it's not about like, it's about being safe in your home, kind of, even in your own church, where that is not even possible right now. And that's, I think, the, also very troubling to see. And they're all like... Um, there is nothing, like right now they're saying, there's nothing to buy, there's no food, there's no water. So even if we want to send money and so on, they're like, don't send money because there is, like, uh, what, what should we do with it? Because there is nothing that re- is reaching to them, you know? Um, and that's the situation, that they're all kind of there and holding on for dear life without even knowing what's coming the next day. I mean, yeah. And there were some quite troubling reports that came out a couple of days ago about... Um... Catholic church in in Gaza City I think which had come under fire from the from the Israeli army or, or some sniper snipers had shot some mem- people who were sheltering there yeah people were sheltering and uh, like uh, two of two of the women they were going to the toilet kind of so and they were shot them right away because they moved so it's uh, kind of it's still like unclear not unclear but it's just frustrating to hear these things like Nobody can move. Nobody can. It's not like um, they're all under siege in their ch- in the churches, but at the same time every, they're all surrounded. So it's not it's not safe simply just to move around. And they're all like scared to go anywhere right now. And they're just like in the churches themselves. I don't know. Like um, it's just it, like we don't know what to say anymore because it's just like um, it's um, it's ironic with uh, how. Um, but that also give you, gives you an, like a, a, a certain image of what's happening right now there in Gaza with, where, with everyone moving around um, because they're like um, controlling kind of everything and not even thinking about anything. Like, I mean, I don't know if like, yeah, no, I'm not going to say that. <laughs> okay. Mm. <laughs> okay. But, yeah. Mm. And Jamie, you said you you're in touch with 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 folk who are kind of sheltering in churches. Is that their experience as well? That it's too dangerous to even just to go outside. Yeah, yeah. People aren't going anywhere. Um, 
there was definitely some movement when the, the ceasefire happened a couple of weeks ago, but since that stopped, people have just been trapped in the compounds. There is nowhere to go. There is nothing to buy. Um, it really is a case of hunkering down. And the news over the weekend was just so troubling because it says that you can't even move inside the compound. And I don't understand how that helps anybody. It's absolutely terrifying. And I talked to, well, my colleague talks to friends. We're trying to limit contact because, well, A, there's not much internet access. And B, the last thing that people want is barrages of questions. So we try and limit who speaks. Um, people are concerned for their children. They're concerned for their families. Um, and there is a sense of, from, definitely from some people, we are from here. That we are Christians who live here and belong here. We, are, we don't want to go anywhere. So there, there is no desire to escape. And I've heard of others who are considering, well, is this somewhere that I can bring my children up and stay in future? So you've got two quite distinct views developing. And the, we, we regularly ask the question, well, how long will the food last? And it seems to always be another five days. Um, but at some point, that five days will just become impossible. And something that really concerns me and perhaps doesn't get enough coverage is, yes, the bombing is awful and the death and injury from bombing is, is horrific and needs to stop. But people are suffering from basic health care and a lack of it. Diseases which should be treatable are now becoming life-threatening. Um, if uh, somebody gets an infection, there's nothing to treat it. Um, so the kind of the general health condition of people all across Gaza is just slowly being degraded. It's a war of attrition. Um, so I don't know how you recover from that quickly. It's just terrifying, honestly. And Richard, I understand one of the main hospitals in Gaza is, is run by the Anglican Church. What's the situation there? Uh, well, it, it's very difficult to get day-to-day -day information out, but we do get bits out. It, they, they are in a terrible state. They are operating because unlike the Shifla Hospital and the Al Hospital in Gaza City, the building is still standing. So although we suffered a missile attack, we're not going to go into that, um, it didn't damage the building very much. Um, and so we still have got most of the rooms usable. But whereas normally we have 40 to 50 beds and we do non-urgent, non non-emergency uh, operations, now it's become a general hospital. Every spare inch of it has got, a, it, it has got somebody either seriously ill um, seriously injured, life-threatening, um, uh, bomb-related, bullet-related uh, injuries. Um, they've got a shortage of all the essential medicines. You know, even now we're hearing about quite serious operations being done without anaesthetics and without all the necessary. We haven't got all the experts needed because surgeons doing basic, you know, uh, operations are not, were not previously a member of our staff like that. Um, but other people have come along from other hospitals where they're no longer able to operate, been able to work with us. Um, it, it, I mean, it is an absolute war zone. Um, and everywhere within Gaza is that war zone. And the hospitals are, are, in many cases, barely able to operate. For our staff, it is so incredibly distressing because this has been going on for them without a break for these 12 weeks. Some of them have had their homes bombed, collapsed, finished, so that one of our senior doctors no longer has a house to live in because that has been bombed to destruction. Um, it, you know, it, it could not be more serious. There is nothing about this situation 
which makes things bearable. Um, it, it, it is the worst imaginable situation that uh, we've seen. We spent a lot of time, understandably, talking about the horror of what is happening on the ground for people in Gaza, um, which has taken up a lot of the focus. Do you guys fear or, or, or do you think that, for understandable reasons, some of the horror and the trauma of what Israelis suffered on October the 7th has been kind of overshadowed by the by the war since then? Has Has the world, quote, kind of moved on too quickly from what was a kind of devastating terrorist attack by any by any definition? Do you think there's a way of holding up the pain of the Gazans while also acknowledging and, and holding up the legitimate kind of pain of, of Israelis? Like, I would say it, it, it's like, it should be possible, like, um, that there's both. Like, you can um, definitely mourn the deaths of the people who died on the 7th of October and... Um, and also more in the deaths of the Gazan people as well, or it's still. <laughs> but at the same time, what happened then and what's happening right now, um, it's just, it's way, like, it doesn't, it, I mean, it's just, it doesn't seem like there's there should be even a question to have this or have a, sol- like, to have solidarity with this or that. We're all, they're all human beings who are being affected by the whole war. So it's, um, Nobody should um, should be dying for any kind of reason because with all of this happening and um, yeah, I mean, of course, everything is overshadowing. And I feel some people are uh, just looking at the seventh of October and not looking at, at everything else. And that's something that I feel like um, like I I understand. It's, it was also horrible, and it's also still everything that is happening is also horrible right now. So I'm just yeah, I don't know. So confused <laughs> with how people are. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think that there is such a massive discrepancy between how um, Jewish Israelis and Jewish people around the world are seeing how the conflict has developed, especially since October the 7th, and how much of the rest of the world has begun to see it. I think there was a lot of sympathy for Israel in the first instance, but the scale of their military attack, which to to the vast majority of observers unschooled in the issues here would would say is out of all proportion. And so all of the focus has much more come on to that. And I think Jewish people feel so, so frustrated that what they feel is, you know, the the worst attack, single day attack that has ever taken place on them, certainly post-Holocaust, has now been pushed into the background. But I think... I think that's sort of inevitable with the with the scale of reprisals and recrimination and vengeance. It it just looks and smells like vengeance, and and so I I think Jewish people, Israelis, Israeli Jews keep wanting to bring it back to that. But people have thought, well, but a lot of really terrible things have happened since, and we don't just go, all of that's fine. 
So it, it, it is morally, ethically complex for people who feel primarily the pain of the Jewish Israelis who were attacked on October the 7th. It strikes me that one of the problems of the age that we live in is that we are pushed into this kind of binary way of looking at the world. It's either we are supporting this side or we are supporting the other. And it's, we find it difficult to hold things in tension. I'm just struck that I've got to try and look from the other side, otherwise I very quickly get pushed into one way of seeing the world. I was listening to um, the board of, head of the Board of Deputies on the TV yesterday, and she was talking about how Israelis will, Jewish Israelis will look at the world pre and post October the 7th, um, which I found kind of very challenging. And I'm, so I'm trying to hold that in my mind, aware that this community is grieving because there was such, such horrific loss and it's kind of shaken their security and all of that. But at the same time, this is within the context of an occupation which has been going on for so many years. The situation in Gaza is just beyond all thinking is so painful and terrifying and I hear stories and information from friends in the West Bank as we've already been talking about that the situation in the West, in the West Bank has, has got worse and there are words from the West um, asking for settlers to be restrained and for the violence there to stop but it's just words and nothing happened. Um, yeah, and I think what, like what you're saying also, like it's just, I'm thinking also that we here are also experiencing the whole thing differently than everywhere around, like in the West and so on. Everyone is expecting so much from the, the community or from the Palestinians or from the Israelis here. Um, and as you said, the grief is quite big and, and um, on both sides, but that's also preventing, like... Um, like not preventing but it's it will come probably later but right now everyone is like busy with themselves kind of and i think people are just like not understanding that um in such a way because they're always tell, saying no you have to do this you have to do that but who can tell someone who's grieving what to do in that matter uh just uh, i wanted to touch on one final issue before we bring this to a close which is that one kind of Christian response that you'll have seen, less so in the UK, particularly from the US, is is a kind of what you might call Christian Zionism, a sense that that as Christians we are supposed to identify with the Jews and with modern-day Israel as somehow kind of God's chosen people. He has a special plan for that country, and, and people feel, a lot of people feel intuitively that they've got to get behind whatever the state of Israel is doing. Um, I'm going to go out on a limb and say, I don't, I don't imagine any of you three share that theology, but what would you say to someone who was wrestling with how to interpret the, what they're seeing on their screens because they are coming from a Christian Zionist perspective? How, how would you, what would, what, what would your response be to such a person? Oh, crikey. Who wants to jump into that uh, boiling pot? Go on, Sally. <laughs> Well, <laughs> I don't think I have a great answer to it because I've been also thinking about like, not like, it's also from a Christian perspective, I'm also trying to understand um, how that makes sense in terms of um, even if, if anyone thinks, okay, this is the promised land. And even though we all think like there's already, um, like we all live in a world where the land is God's in that sense. So I'm thinking of that. I always think of that that terms of being we all live in God's land and I don't think that God wants us to 
misused the lamb or because he said also, um, I'll give you the lamb, but don't misuse it or don't um, do these things with it. And if you do, the lamb will kind of reject you. And um, that's what I, that uh, all these Old Testament stuff that is also written, like people are just picking stuff without knowing like the whole picture of it all because um, I don't know how, I think it's sometimes easier to talk about a land that you don't live in or a land that you're far away from than living in it. And um, at the same time, um, using religion in that sense to justify um, for anything that is happening, I, I don't think um, that God would want that in any way because of like we ha we have the New Testament for a reason. We have also the Old Testament for a reason. We have the whole Christianity in a way there um, that actually tells us how, like um, tells us what it is all about. And um, I don't know. I think maybe <laughs> Richard, you have some other <laughs> comments to it. Um, you know, if if it is your way to look at the Bible, looking for prophecies and looking for their fulfillment in our present days, then you know, you're, you're going to have a really hard job to make sense of what's happening in the world in relation to direct so-called prophecies that people are picking up, which often had a, a particular context in the day in which they were written, um, rather than this 2023 being the context in which, for which they were intended. So predict, you know, reading it for that, is an incredibly challenging thing and requires massive responsibility in not misreading uh, and trying to understand prophecy. I have to say it's not my way of reading scripture or revelation, looking for predictions of what is about to happen. That's not my understanding of what the purpose of the apocalyptic literature, of revelation um, was about so I would be starting from a completely different place but understanding that I have a different way of reading and interpreting as Sally said even if you do and understand that um, uh, Israel is the is the chosen people it does not make everything that they do right because everybody every single person nobody is ab above the ethical call to love your neighbor as yourself and to see the image of God in every single person. So that for me is the baseline standard and everything that everybody does as an individual, as a community, as a country is judged by the way in which they look after the vulnerable within the, within the community and live at peace with their neighbors. Um, those are the things that I think we look, must look at first and foremost, not, oh, certain people, certain nations can do whatever they like because they have a special place in the purposes of God. I'd echo both of what Richard and Sally said. They are both much more eloquent and wise theologians than I. But I, I'm struck that we take things out of context. We take verses and put special meaning by them and don't think about them where they sit within the, the passage of Scripture, and let alone within the broad context of the Bible. Um, and similarly to my two panellists, I don't have the same theology around Zionism and kind of prejudicing the um, people of Israel in a, in a different way. But I do think about 
God's character in all things. And I agree with what Richard was saying there. It's like, how does the way somebody is acting, how does the way I respond reflect God's character? Um, we are we are called to love our neighbour. We are called to do justly, love mercy, walk humbly. Um, we are called to value all people. And we are called to be peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers. Um, not ripping it out of context. Um, that's really important. So if, if you're supporting something which is fundamentally against God's character, you need to ask yourself some questions. Is your theology right or have you missed something? Because um, we have a God who is full of grace. Um, Sally talked earlier about turning the other cheek. As Christians, we are called to live differently. And surely this is one of those opportunities. Um, and I worry when I, I come across some Christians who seem to be having a, almost like a, a mathematical approach to God. If we can make these preconditions happen, we've read these prophecies, so if we push this situation, that means God will do this. I think if we're doing that, we're getting ahead of ourselves because God doesn't do what we want. He works in his ways. He works in his time. Um, it's an eternity that he's working out and a plan that he's got. It's not mine. Um, so I think our call as Christians, whatever your persuasion is on Israel and where it sits in God's bigger plan, is to do less, to justly and love mercy and walk humbly. Just lastly, then, one thing I wanted to, to end on is is a question of how we can we can pray uh, for those of us who are kind of far away from this conflict, but watching on. I was really struck by this prayer released by the United Reformed Church, actually, several months ago in October, which I thought was kind of unusually honest in summing up how a lot of us feel. Uh, they wrote this, um, Oh Lord, we hear the news and don't know what to say. We see these scenes of violence and don't know how to pray. We read of people fighting over the land and know it was ever thus. We hear of international outrage and messages of support, but know there's more to this complex story of land, justice, faith, security and history than can be encapsulated in easy sound bites. We watch, listen, read and try to pray, but there are no words in us. And I thought that really summed up how a lot of us feel, which is that we desperately want to pray into the situation, but it's so hard to know what the right thing to say is. Do we have to pick a side? Are we praying for peace and a ceasefire or is that simplistic? Are, are we just calling a standing against all violence? I mean, as a final thought, how would each of you re kind of advise Christians on what can they be praying for um, as we go into 2024? Well, yeah, pray, pray truthfully. I think that the value of that URC prayer is to pray truthfully. Um, but uh, yes, of course, we must pray for peace, but we pray for peace with justice. Too much praying for peace previously in this land and focused on this land has been, oh, let's just stop the presenting violence. Oh, thank goodness, it's, it's an end. We can go back to normal lives. And Palestinians have not been able to go back to nor their normal lives because they're living under occupation and in Gaza living under uh, a blockade. So we're praying for justice that is deep-rooted, that sees the, the value of every person as a child of God um, and, and a peace that lasts, which touches every part and sector of society. And we pray for leaders, that they will look at the world not from their, their selfish political um, career ends, but really looking at the welfare of all people. Um, and, and we pray for the protection of the vulnerable. We pray for um, uh, the, the road and pathway to peace to emerge and to ask God, what is 
our part? What is my part in creating that? Sally, what are you praying for at this this Christmas time? Um, yeah, I think it's uh, it's been difficult because I mean I've always struggled with prayer in terms of putting words into prayer because I'm like um, as also the prayer that you read like it sums it up in, in that sense because I feel like God like when we pray He doesn't care what kind of words we use. Um, so I feel like right now all I'm praying for is finding the right words for when when we're doing the Christmas services on Sunday and Monday <laughs> um, because I've been struggling with that. But mostly I pray I pray for peace and I pray for the world um, to wake up uh, kind of to see the injustices in this world, not only here but all over the world, where every where there's something, you know. Mm. And Jamie, same question to you. What are you praying for? I've been praying in two very different directions. And I've been really surprised, actually, at how I may have finally learned what praying without ceasing means. I've never woken up with places and names on my heart as much as I have in this last two months. Um, So on the one hand, I'm praying very specifically for individuals, for the people who are in the middle of this, to have God's sustaining power to live through it and come out the other side and to continue loving people around them because I know they're not just looking after themselves. The Christian community is helping as far as it can. And then praying at a kind of a much higher level for leaders' hearts to be changed, whether that's in our government in the UK, because we are slow to respond and slow to be um, compassionate, it seems. Praying for politicians in Israel where the rhetoric is just stronger than ever, that somehow God breaks that rhetoric and shows people a different way and similarly praying for the Palestinian leadership um, which doesn't appear to have been the most effective so kind of praying on those kind of two very different levels and in the background are the words from Luke which talk about to much to who much has been given much is required I live in a peaceful place so what what is what is my responsibility here Um, there is a requirement for for me to pray and for me to act and for me to encourage others to, to do that too um, and just trying not to forget, because I think it's very easy to be numbed by this. I think about what is happening in Gaza and reflect on what has been happening in Ukraine for the last however long. Ukraine's kind of fallen off my consciousness, and I'm sure for many people, Gaza, will, the same will happen if we are not careful. So it's praying that we do not forget, that we remember, and that we are faithful, knowing that ultimately God is faithful, and praying that his kingdom will come somehow. Well, amen to all of that. Thank you so much, Richard, uh, Sally and Jamie. It's been really um, interesting, really helpful hearing you talk about that and share some of the things that you've been hearing and experiencing. So I'm really grateful for your time and thank you everyone else for listening. Um, this will be our last episode before Christmas. So I hope it's not too much of a downer, but it's really, as, you, as we've been hearing, really important not to turn away, not to look away from what is happening in the Holy Land at this time of year in particular. So um, thanks for joining us on the podcast and uh, we'll, uh, we'll see you again in the new year with a new series. Bye-bye. That's it for this week's Premier Christian Newscast. But before you go, please do leave us a review on your podcast app of choice. And why not tell a friend about the show too? And if you'd like even more church news analysis, 
you can also subscribe to my new free email newsletter, The Critical Friend. Each week, I send an email packed with links to interesting things happening in the church world and my commentary on them. Just visit tswyatt.substack.com to find out more and subscribe. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Premier Christian Newscast. 